0: Welcome to Ugly Sweater Sunday, where we answer your guys's questions uh, and bless you for coming out on this snowy morning. Uh, you could tell that you know the roads weren't great, and not everyone comes out when the first snowfall on a Sunday hits. So welcome. Uh, we got so many questions this year that we're gonna have to do it in two parts. So we're taking six. Hopefully this morning we got 14 in, so we're only gonna try and get through six. We'll see how we go.
1: I think Darcy was correct in <coughs> saying that we probably will only get to get through three. three. Uh, Very likely. There's so stay no, tuned. No one's here today. I know.
0: Did you oh not man, notice that we until? We
1: like... and shovel some driveways after the service. I'm yeah, confident yeah. of it. Great. You know, okay. the ones. Who are I going was gonna to say, not today. no one's here. The ones that are, have a secured place with the Lord uh, are, here. are here. That's great. That's good. Praise the Lord. Yeah, so
0: we got 14 in, so we're gonna do part two in the new year. So we're gonna do some this morning. We'll do part two in the middle of your year. We're trying to decide if we're going to do it up here or do it a podcast or something. I don't know. But you'll hear the rest there's of them. so many questions. So yeah. if we don't get to your question today or if you're listening to the podcast after and you're wondering why didn't you guys talk about my question, maybe that's why too. There are some hard questions. And people are like, I don't want to sit in the audience and them know that I was the one who gave them the question. Well, so I'm just going to They don't, they don't,
2: want don't us to I'm just gonna
0: listen to the answer later. Yeah. 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 We
1: don't know Great. who gave the questions.
0: Okay. So I think they're going to come up on the screen uh, and then we'll take them as they come. Do we if get not, them? Oh, there's the first one.
1: Okay. Oh, hey, this is, I'm the first one. Our current Bible has books missing. The Book of Enoch and the Testament of Thomas, amongst others. Uh, why have these been removed? And are they worthy to, uh, to be read and studied? Fantastic question. Whoever asked that question. Your timer's starting. Timer's starting. Okay. <laughs> are you paying <laughs> attention? Because it's going to be like a fire hose of information. Whoever's wearing the Grinch costume over there, thank it's you. It's Mariah, um, and um, I'm so is, happy right now. <laughs> We're gonna save
0: the Grinch, guys. We're gonna Very save Jesus <laughs> the Grinch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man, this is great. So, okay, so here's the thing. There's two things to look at here already. So, so this is a bit of a background education piece. So, there are excluded texts in the Protestant Bible compared to the Catholic Bible, okay? So, let's just make sure we have an understanding of that. The differences here are the, uh, that we see in Catholicism and other Eastern Orthodox Bibles, and they are not included in the Protestant or Jewish Bibles as they are not considered inspired or canonical, okay? The name Deutero means uh, that they are considered second canon. And the reason being is that they were introduced into teaching far later than the original books were uh, compiled and put together, okay? So uh, they were considered sacred texts to some sections of Christianity, but they were introduced in the late 17th century. So their dating, uh, the dating of them is far, far later than what we see in the texts that are included in our scriptures. And these books were also included in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, and have historical and theological significance in various Christian traditions. They can be looked at for history and understanding of culture and times, uh, but aren't to be considered inspired texts meaning that they aren't to be considered uh, directly influenced by the Holy Spirit of God, but rather simply documentation about the life and times, okay? And so these texts are of notable origin. Uh, They're validated and historically recognized and substantiated texts, just not inspired texts. And so an example of some of these that you may have heard of before are the book of Tobit, Judith, the wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Baruch, Uh, 1 and 2 Maccabees, as well as additions in the book of Esther and the book of Daniel. So those are some of the differences that we see in the Catholic Bible versus the Protestant Bible, and we see some of these uh, texts overlap for historical documentation. So now the other part of this question that we need to look at is um, the books that are missing talking about uh, Enoch and the Testament of Thomas, okay? So, really long story short, they have never been removed as they were actually never included. But let's look at some of these, for example. So, these types of texts, the, the Book of Enoch, uh, the Testament of Thomas, and others, these are considered apocryphal texts or pseudo epigraphical texts, okay? Apocryphal means mythical or legendary uh, or of questionable origin. And pseudo epigraphical means uh, spurious writings that were written under a different name or have been widely but falsely attributed to a person, or they may be outrightly uh, a a fallacy or simply lore, okay? So these texts are more easily, easy to identify as outliers uh, and are not included in any biblical or any Bible uh, of uh, Christian tradition, except with one exception. Are you ready for this? I like this exception. I particularly like the book of Enoch. Uh, we can talk about it at a different time if you want to. Um, so the caveat to all these other types of texts is specifically the Book of Enoch, as it is uh, firmly seated in the canon of the Ethiopian Orthodox Bible. So there is a Christian tradition that does hold to the, uh, to the Book of Enoch as being cano- canonical texts, but there's many that aren't, okay? So different sects of Christianity have their views on these texts, but they were widely discounted as they tend to be uh, unsubstantiated And they lack substance of history and validity, and simply aren't able to be anchored back to supporting ancient texts, and they're not able to be verified appropriately. Uh, They are used by some to give understanding around myths and lore of ancient groups, as was passed down through oral tradition, but many view them with skepticism and do not include them in their regular study of the Bible. I would also encourage you also not to include them in your regular study of the Bible. So given their predominantly mystical nature, there is an allure to study these texts uh, and to have them inform the broader understanding of what we see in God's word, but to do so would be a concerning road to go down, as one would then be using a a supposition rather than fact to parse out the truth of the Holy Scriptures. It would be wise to not actively delve into a study of these books unless you first have a very strong anchoring uh, to the basic foundational principles of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the ordained script, structure of the Holy Bible. And so some of these apoc- uh, apocryphal texts are as follows, but not limited to, the Book of Enoch, Jubilees, the Ascension of Isaiah, the Assumption of Moses, it sounds like Moses assumed many things, uh, the Letter of <laughs> Aristius, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and the Proto-Evangelium, Great word, eh? The proto evangelium of James. Uh, So, long story short, okay, just to package that all up, uh, they haven't been removed from our Bible since they were never actually originally included in the text anyway. Uh, But in some cases, they can be used for historical uh, uh, relevance, but not spiritual guidance. How was that for an answer? Was that okay? It's good? Great. All right, now you know.
0: Resource quickly, because uh, James didn't say it. it. There's a great teacher named Chuck Missler, if you want to look him up. And he will go in, into great depth into how scripture was compiled into the Bible and why the books that are in there were included in there and how they're all connected. They all reference one another. And any of those other ones that James talked about actually don't reference any other book that's in there. And so there's this this weaving through of God's story and God's spirit through the books that were collected as our scripture. And there's there's great reason why those ones are there.
1: Scholars would say that you can see the fingerprint of God or the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures that we have compiled because they all point to one another. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and we can talk more about that at a different date if you have questions. You did so good. Oh, I just, I'm you know, so I, proud I of you. Can down. we give him a big hug? Yeah,
0: a big uh, big hug. I'll hug him later. Give him a big clap. Yes, you did so good. I was one, though, like on time. Like four pages yeah, I know. I know. He's saving it up. Okay, next last question. Is climate change real or is it biblical prophecy? All right, you ready?
3: Great
1: question okay this one? i am do we have different opinions on this i don't know maybe we're gonna find out okay they're gonna fight after <laughs> we're gonna fight Fine.
0: after yeah. those of you who don't know us well know that we have differing opinions on lots of things oh, but it's good it keeps our marriage spicy
1: <laughs> I, I <don't>, <laughs> wow so anyway i don't believe women should be preachers so. <laughs> <laughs> It's recorded, right? Did you record that? <laughs> great. That's great. I'm going to get a letter. Let's throw him out. Wife. Let's throw him out.
0: <laughs> Especially anyone that was at Bill Group, and I just went like into like an hour of teaching oh, of why. Anyways, so great. Uh, it's great. <laughs> On that note, is climate change a biblical prophecy or real? Well, let's start on understanding that everyone in this room, especially in a Christian room, is somewhere on the spectrum of climate change is not even a real thing to uh, climate change is going to take over everything and going to create a world fire and we're all going to die and we should all be afraid. So, and somewhere on the spectrum, okay? So let's, let's just... (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, let's 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 have some fun this morning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what we do know, what we do know, is that Scripture talks about is not being divided and anchoring to where we can uh, all agree. So we're just going to start there. So let's say, according to NASA, climate change is this encompasses global warming, but refers to the broader range of changes that are happening to our planet, including rising rising sea levels, shrinking mountain glaciers, accelerating ice melt in Greenland, uh, Antarctic and the Arctic and shifts in flower and plant blooming times. This is the definition of climate change. Now, the, the, uh, what we think it means is I think where we differ. All the things I just listed are things that we can measure. They are things that are actually happening in our world. Now, where the debate comes in is whether or not those things are caused because of human behavior and us ruining our planet, whether or not they're biblical prophecy, or whether or not they're just changes that have happened for thousands of years and we just didn't know it. So I'm going to give you a big spectrum on all of it and hopefully land somewhere. You ready? Okay. So, what we know is that we've only been measuring these things for a very short time of the history of our world. The rest of it is actually assumptions that we're making. So, yes, these are things that have changed in the, in the time frame that we have been measuring stuff, but we actually have no concrete evidence to know whether or not they have changed over 10,000 years because no one was measuring these things 10,000 years ago. And the way that we date all of this and we actually look into all this is actually based on uh, measurements that are very inaccurate when you go past a couple hundred, maybe a thousand, depending on which measurements you're using. They become very inaccurate because things change. Most of these principles are based on pressure, time, and temperature. And that has changed over time. We know that in the Bible. Even if we anchor to the Bible, you think about what the flood would have done to the earth right? It changed the temperature, it changed pressure systems, it changed time, all of these things. And so this uh, plays into this conversation. I love to say that mathematics is the only concrete thing that we know. Why? Because math can be measured. I love math. Anyone here love math? I love math. I find math very, side note, I find Ah. math, (laughs) math is very therapeutic for me. Why? Because math always has a definitive answer. Right? You do a math question, Only there's
2: if a right... you understand it. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> I know like three math words, like polynomials. Okay, I got that one. That's all I got. Okay. I, got I know one. I know one
0: Anyways, math word. Okay, you're ruining my knowledge. Anyways, here. So <laughs> mathematics has concrete answers. Science is actually the interpretation of math. Okay. So let's think about this. Science, we think of actually, and the more and more that the history of humanity has gone on, the more this has become real. Science is actually taking data, the mathematical data that we can concretely see, and interpreting it in some way. And a lot of times, it's hypothesis, and we are, we are measuring that through scientific method. But even that, without knowing it, we have a lot of biases that we put into our scientific method. And so anything you read that says it's science, especially today, we actually need to be careful that we're reading it through a lens that there is a, a narrative that may be trying to be said. I'm not saying it always is, but there's always more going on. It's interpreting data. That's what science really is, okay? Especially when you're talking about science, about climate change. I'm not saying one way or another or even giving you my perspective on climate change. I'm just telling you that we need to be cautious when we're looking at the topic in knowing that, yes, these are measurable pieces of data, but what that means may be up for interpretation, okay? So here's what we know. We know that scripture talks about things like fires and floods and all of these things are going to come. It talks about it all the way through the scripture. It actually talks that the whole earth will be burnt up in a fire and be destroyed. Here's some things that will happen before that happens though. Christ will come back and he will reign for a thousand years. That has not happened yet. Which means the earth is not going to be burnt up yet. That's what we do know. But do we know that some of this stuff is going to happen? Yeah. So is it climate change or is it prophecy? It might be both. We just don't know. What we do know is that Scripture is clear that we are supposed to take care of the planet. It says it all the way from Genesis all the way through. God's creation is something that we should honor. It's something that we should not worship. But it is something that we should be taking care of and making sure that we're not doing things that are going to damage it more. I think we can all agree on that, right? So it doesn't actually matter whether or not climate change is real or wrong. The implications of it are still the same. As Christians, we should honor and take care of what God, the creation that God has given us. And he said, you are good stewards of this. Take care of it. I'm putting it in your hands to take care of. And so that is our job, no matter what we believe. And whether or not it's prophetic it, it, and it's revelation coming to life, it probably is. But we don't even know how long that process is going to take. That could be thousands of years. So I think as Christians, what do we do? We live today as if we don't have a tomorrow, and we plan as if we have a whole life. We make every decision based on that, and that includes climate change and prophecy and all of these things. It is not a bad thing to read the scriptures and to try and understand what is going to happen, but really that should just point us back to the urgency of living out our faith but not living with fear. And those are two different things. Uh, So I think no matter what, where we land on climate change, the response from a Christian is the exact same. Is that we are to do everything we can to be a good steward of the planet that we live on. And that does not matter whether or not we think climate change was caused from thousands of years of us ruining the planet. Or it was caused by prophecy. None of that changes our response as a Christian. That's it. Do you have anything
2: different you want to say? Oh, you know, good do you job. disagree?
1: I'm 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 just sitting over here enjoying enjoying you.
2: <laughs> He's changed his mind about women preachers, I think.
1: Yeah, I uh, that's right. I'm gonna go do burnouts in the parking lot after. And this is this is no, I'm just joking. This is good. This is good. Praise the Lord. <laughs> uh,
0: did I miss anything that was no, important I think that's to say?
1: Good. I think that packages that up great because I, I, there's there's so much that we see in the scriptures, especially uh, scriptures that are foretelling scriptures or we can call them like apocalyptic, scrip- apocalyptic scriptures that look ahead to what's going to happen or head to the future. And uh, and the language that was used um, can be challenging to interpret today, but I think a lot of what we see in the language of the apocalyptic or foretelling scriptures really speaks volumes to what we see going on in the world today um, through the lens of people who didn't have the language to uh, verbalize or talk about what climate change might look like or what a helicopter was or those sorts of things, right? The language didn't exist. And so I think in in our process of interpreting what some of these things look like, I think we can find a great opportunity to see that scripture is a fantastic foreteller to the things that we see around us today. Um, But we we have to be cautious of not just going over the deep end when it comes to that.
2: Great. Also, okay. I really like yeah. what you said about not being afraid because I think that's a really good um, point is if you're getting too into this stuff and it's becoming fearful, then, you know, that's pretty much a red flag. Like, yeah. don't oh. stop doing that. Don't be afraid. <laughs> stop looking into it too much. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I, the last piece I would say is from a Christian perspective is the planet was created for our enjoyment and to serve us and not the other way around. And we need to be cautious.
1: Yeah. yeah. Good. Love it. What else have we got? Oh, are you going? I to think this is mine. Die? What? I think it's mine. Okay, yeah. Are, go it,
2: are you going to heaven if you die right after sin and don't ask for forgiveness, even if you're a Christian? Oh, big question. So um, I thought I would start by talking about like what is salvation, because I really think that that can be kind of blurry for some people. But there is scripture that really is firm on what that means. Um, the first one, a lot of us, if you grew up in church, probably memorized it, but it's John 3:16. Um, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So this means that when you have decided to follow Jesus, you're like, I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Him. Um, you understand that you've sinned. You understand that you need a Savior, uh, and then you've said, I believe that Jesus is the answer to that. He's going to cover my sin. He's going to take that away. Then that's a done deal, right? Like you've you've fully in your heart are believing that, then that means it's, it's that's it. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, it talks about the difference between truly accepting salvation and vain faith. Um, and it says, uh, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, so I looked into what that word means, vain, uh, in the Greek, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it's spelled E-I-K-E. Uh, if anyone knows Greek, you can say it if you want. Um, <laughs> but basically, what it means, do you know it, Ben? You had you got your mic up. <laughs> Ike, don't try. That's I don't okay. know. Anyways, but what, what you're I- learning is that no one would know if you pronounced it wrong. That's right. Yeah, it's true. Okay, Ben, you got it. Ike. Um, <laughs> So what it means is without cause or reason. So believing in something without cause or reason is believing in vain. So if you were like, I know that Jesus existed, he walked the earth, like most historians would believe that. Um, If you look back, there's a lot of documentation that's even outside of the Bible that talks about Jesus of Nazareth. And so believing in him and having, like, the head knowledge of who he is is kind of believing in vain, right? It's like you're believing without reason. He just, he existed. Yeah, that's awesome. But believing, like it, it talks about in John 3.16, is believing he's the answer, right? Believing that he is actually, like, the solution to everything that's going wrong in this world, in your life, um, all of the problems that you're, that you're facing, the answer to our sin, everything like that, the solution, and so the gospel says in John three sixteen that he is the savior, right? We're gonna follow him, and he is going to bring salvation. So uh, that's the first part. After accepting Jesus, the second thing that happens is in Revelation three five, where it says, "The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before His angels." So what that basically means is once you've made that decision. You are, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and when we stand before God on Judgment Day, Jesus is actually going to be our defender at that point. And so when, when there's like that moment, right, of like answering for everything, the, the answer is Jesus. Jesus steps in and he says that he's paid the price at that point. Uh, then Romans 8, 9 talks about, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, at the point when you accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit, you invite the Holy Spirit into your life. The Holy Spirit becomes the helper who guides us through this life, who helps to fix things that are going on in our hearts. All of us know we have things going on in our hearts that need to change. Uh, The fancy word for this change that happens is called sanctification. But basically what it means is your life starts to look more like Jesus. You start to surrender some of the things that you've held on to, some of those sin issues, and ask God to help you work through those things. Uh, and we want people to know what who God is by our lives, right? So sanctification is the process of letting Jesus and the Holy Spirit change our hearts so that we can become an example of who God is to the world around us. Uh, first, uh, Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So that means that accepting Jesus and having the Holy Spirit do that work in us is just the beginning, right? It's like you start the process, you say, Jesus, I want you in my life. You become saved, but then there's a whole process of living. It doesn't have to do with your salvation, but it has to do with becoming more like Jesus every day, taking steps towards him every day. And then it says in the Bible that we will have fruit, right? Our life will look different once we accept Jesus. So that's one way that you'll know is you're wanting your life to look different. You're wanting Jesus to transform you. You don't want to be the same person anymore. And so um, I know the person who asked this wasn't really asking this question, but I feel like it relates Uh, there's like this side of the spectrum, right? Where people are like, oh my goodness, I've sinned. I I can't sin ever again. I'm going to hell. And then there's this side of the spectrum, which we we hear about in Scripture where it's like, well, you know, Jesus forgave me. My sin is like whatever. I can just keep doing the same things over and over again. And really, it actually talks about that and addresses it in Romans 6, 1 and 2. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so there's this other side, right? Yes, we can know we're forgiven. We can know that Jesus has paid the price. But then there's this other side of the spectrum. We don't want to be like, well, I guess it doesn't matter what I do now for the rest of my life, right? Uh, Because we do, once we've accepted Jesus, we've chosen to die to sin. We've chosen to say, that's it. I don't want to live this way anymore. We want to live a new life. And so that's why we ask God to forgive us, right? We want to repent. We want to turn away from those things because we know it grieves his heart. And also because we want to, our lives to look more like Jesus. So it's this process of understanding, yes, we are forgiven, and we don't want to hold on to that guilt and condemnation, but also to recognize that Jesus has paid the price. But the reason why, I think, is really what it is. The reason why we move forward and we try not to like keep doing the same things and we want that change is because we want our life to look different because we want to be obedient to Christ because we love him, right? It's not this feeling of like, I'm just going to feel guilty all the time because I always sin because I'm this terrible person and I keep doing the same things. It's like, God, I really desperately want you to change my heart. I really don't want to keep doing these things because I know it grieves your heart and I want to be obedient to you and I want to love you and I want people to see uh, that change in me. So the short answer is if you are a Christian, if you've accepted Jesus and you sin right before you die and you don't ask for forgiveness, you would still go to heaven Um So that's the short answer. But all of that is kind of included in it. This spectrum of, yes, you're forgiven, but our desire should always be to be growing closer to Jesus. And when we ask for forgiveness, that kind of like, that just starts us anew again, right? It's like we're turning away from that sin. We're going to go forward in a new direction. God, please continue to change me, continue to transform me, and then you just move on from there.
0: Great answer. Okay, I think you're up next, Ben.
2: Oh, yeah.
3: Good job. Good job. Uh, I'd like to start off by saying that whoever joined Darcy in his pool is about to lose because we're entering question four now, right? Yeah, is that right? yeah that's yeah. right. We're doing
0: great, Darcy. <laughs> yeah. Ye have <of> little <laughs> faith.
3: <Yeah. laughs> Why don't we follow Jewish law? Okay, so I want to kind of take a 10,000-foot 10, 10, view of... I thought of you were going to say 10 sentence. minutes. I was like, no, you only I'm got five. 10 minutes. No, yeah. i take a 10,000-foot view of, this, of this, the answer to this question because what, what we're talking about when you say Jewish law... It's predominantly, um, it's called like the Levitical law. It's in the book of Leviticus, and it was given to Moses at Mount Sinai when the uh, Israelites left Egypt. So they left Egypt to go to the promised land. God leads them away from the promised land in order that they could meet with him, and that's when he would give them the, um, you call it the Mosaic law, the Levitical law, and he makes a covenant with them at that point. And then from that point on, Israelites followed that all the way until the new covenant when is when that's when Jesus came but um to 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 get to that 10,000 foot view I want to talk about biblical covenants because there's actually five covenants that God made in, in the Bible that are very important the first one was with Noah it's called the Noadic covenant if you like big words and that one is the preservation of humanity okay the second one is the um oh 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 it's getting there Abrahamic he made it with Abraham right And that was the purpose of that covenant was actually the people Israel didn't weren't a thing back then. Israel came from Abraham. so that was one of the initial setting apart of that people group. Abraham was going to be the father of all Israel and the covenant that he makes with him is that you will have descendants as numerous as the stars. so he's talking about all of the people that would be um, Israel and then eventually to us as the the Gentiles because of our faith and because of Jesus so that's the second one the third covenant is the um, the one that was made with M- Moses Mosaic covenant I think it sounds like a tile but the the covenant he made with Moses right and that was the okay and that was the one where they left um, Egypt then there's two more the one that he made with uh, David Davidic and uh, you just add IC at the end of any word. it's a covenant now. <laughs> so the the covenant said that the Savior would come from the line of David. okay so he's setting apart David, he's setting apart David's line for, for, um, for Jesus to come through and then obviously the last covenant is the the new covenant, which is the one that's made um, through Jesus. okay And so I think that sometimes we get caught up a little bit on um, for some reason, the mosaic covenant gets highlighted almost as if in contrast to the the new covenant. But they tell a story. Okay, Jesus was always the plan from the very beginning. In in uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter one, you look at the Garden of Eden. He he prophesized about Jesus coming and what would happen in that area. So the the covenant with Moses was never like the end goal it was always Jesus and so if it wasn't the end goal why would it what was the purpose of it being there at that time okay so the people of Israel went into Egypt with Joseph right there was the famine and God was saving them and back then it was a family and it was a family of about 66 maybe 100 people went into Egypt and so um they were saved, and they brought all the relatives and all that, Or maybe they were just counting the men. Anyway, it's a small number. And so the people grew drastically in Egypt, right? You can see that in, in well, the book, I guess it would be Exodus. Yeah, the beginning of Exodus. They grew drastically, I think, within the first couple of verses, to the point where we know that when they left Egypt, they were in the millions as a people group. And so um, God had always been setting them apart, But now he needed to give them something so that they could, as an entire people group, be set apart for him. It was kind of like an introduction to a new era of Israel. Because before when he made a covenant with Abraham, we know through the scripture that God was able to speak to Abraham and they had an intimate relationship, right? Same with um, Noah, so he set these people apart. And so the Jewish law, was given then for that people group but it what it is is it's a reflection of something else right jesus says that he doesn't come to contradict the law he came to contradict the pharisees interpretation of law but he's the fulfillment of it and we follow uh jesus which is the fulfillment of the law so um hebrews chapter 8 and 9 really digs into this and um if I'm going to scroll down here to scroll. Yeah. Down to verse 8. Good job. That's for Gen Z. <laughs> got to use words of encouragement Mo- to read Moses the Bible. Moses and his tablets. Yeah. The tablets, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The
1: yeah, that's right. Scroll. Oh, yeah. The connection with Wi-Fi was bad. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. why he had to go up to the mountain because he had to get a Yeah, that's connection.
3: right. Yeah, he was looking for service. Yeah, that's where he got the law.
1: Yeah. Uh, Can you hear me now?
3: And then. Oh,
1: Jesus!
3: Wow. Okay, this is uh, Hebrews chapter eight, verse eight. Um, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers um, on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did, they did not continue in my covenant. Um, and I showed, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this will be the covenant that I make with the house of Israel. And for those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I want to just stop there real quick. It's an internalized, it's, that's an internal thing. Before, when they, the laws were written on tablets and they were external, outside. But now they've become internalized. The difference is, I believe is the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the Holy Spirit back then. In Before this, this is a people group that grew up under a different culture. right? They were grew up under Egyptian culture. So God had to set them apart all together and he gave them these laws. The new covenant, when we get set apart, we get set apart because of the Holy Spirit in us. And this process of sanctification that Kristen was talking about, It's that's the heart of it still. It's the same. But also the new covenant is um, or the old covenant is a reflection of the new one at the beginning of the verse uh, uh, at chapter 8 at the beginning of the chapter 8 verse 1 it calls says Jesus is the high priest of the better covenant and um, the way that the covenants were set up the old covenant is that the priests had to go and give an offering or a sacrifice in order to pay for the sin. That was the high priest, but now Jesus is our high priest, and he's the orchestrator of the new covenant, and he's the one that had to go give an offering and pay a price in order to cover the sin, right? So they actually don't contradict each other. The, the heart is the same, but the, the setting apart is an internalized setting apart rather than externalized. And um, so why don't we have to follow the Jewish law? Because it's it was for that people at that time, only in preparation for the, the G, new covenant with Jesus, which was always the goal. And that opens up a whole new question. Like, why did Jesus come at the time that he did? Um, why wasn't a covenant law given to Abraham? And uh, at some point, you just have to trust that God knows what he's doing and uh, be comfortable with not having all
1: of the answers. Uh, give him a round of applause. That was an excellent answer, Ben. Yeah. Really good, thank you. It's
0: great. Yeah, I, can I add one thing to it? Add it. Great, excellent. I think understanding Jewish law in in uh, in Exodus or in Leviticus and all those those rule, rules that were given were actually for two different purposes. There was the religious like law that was given, and then there was cultural law for them to survive. You had millions of people now that were living in camps. And so they actually gave a lot of hygiene and uh, a lot of even the food laws, if you actually look into it, had a lot to do with like health pieces in the space that they're in. They're in a place where they needed to have some rules around hygiene or rules around, you know, things that, uh, that would keep them healthy to now be a people group. And so even understanding the law, it's not just black and white.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah so I know that like, really what you guys were really trying to ask, and I know this, I know the heart behind the question was, can I eat bacon? And... <laughs> <laughs> I know this. I know. You can. Uh, you know, you the can. Lord is sharing this with me right now. Except if you're
0: Tammy. Tammy cannot uh, yeah. eat bacon because yeah. she will die.
1: Uh, um. Because she is part of the Levitical covenant. <laughs> 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 okay, next. No, on that next question. I don't know which oh, one's next. Man. Oh, man. Okay. okay. Say- we have two left. Don't ready? take 15 this minutes. Is, this is, this is, oh, no, this will be a while. So. Uh, what do you does, want me to do mine first then,
0: and then you can just take up whatever no, time you no. want? What does scripture
1: okay. say about crystals and their use? What about witchcraft? Dun, dun, dun. Such a good question. Everybody buckled in? Yeah. Okay, we live in the Kootenays, so no one here is a stranger to witchcraft or crystals. Uh, so <laughs> welcome to the party. Go to Shambhala a couple of times, and you'll be like, I get it. I understand where the things come from. So here's the deal, so, so I, I get asked this question so often it is bizarre, uh, but it's, it's, not, it's not bizarre anymore. And, and so as I've processed this question, I've processed this question for a lot of years, not, not because I uh, needed to discover if there was anything inherently wrong or not. I already had my position on that. But where, where does the, the attraction come to in these sorts of things? So when I was a kid, I was a little kid, I made uh, a crystal radio with my dad uh, for a science fair project. And, and how fascinating is it that you can take a little chunk of quartzite crystal and uh, wrap it with wire on each end, and it's able to uh, attain frequencies. That is pretty fantastic. So we have to ask the question, can crystals do anything? Because, you know, often you see, you know, folks post pictures on the Instagram. Oh, I'm charging my crystals in the full moon on the roof of my camper van. Life is good. <laughs> uh, this is fantastic. And, and so we got we to gotta wonder sometimes, like, can crystals even do anything? So naively, we can say, well, of course, crystals can't do anything. They're just rocks. Don't be stupid. But realistically, actually, crystals can do things. It's kind of neat. So, hang on, we'll get into the, hang on, hey, Gwen, this isn't a public interaction, Gwen, we'll get into this in a second. Okay, so can crystals do anything? Yes. Yes, actually, crystals can do things, which is kind of interesting. So they are frequency detectors, okay, they're modulators, uh, they can produce electricity, they're uh, they Can you feel the uncomfortableness
0: in the room? They're like, where's the pastor going oh, with no, this? this? Don't free. worry, it's no, going to be, no, 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 be good. It's going to be appreciate good. Appreciate
1: the journey, embrace <laughs> the uncomfortability, this is great. So, uh, so, so you put a crystal under pressure? Piezoelectricity, electricity. Amazing. You're able to produce voltage out of a crystal just by applying pressure to it. That is pretty cool. If you have a fancy watch, not a Chinese watch, but if you have a fancy watch, it has crystals in it that actually power the watch pretty neat. Uh, they're able to u- be used as uh, detectors, okay, so they can be used as devices that rectify or demodulate incoming radio frequencies. That is pretty stinking cool. It's just a rock. But it is a powerful rock, pretty neat. They can be used for rectification. And so a crystal performs rectification, which is a process that allows the extraction of an audio signal from the modulated RF carrier wave. And in simple terms, rectification converts an alternating current, AC, radio signal, into a pulsating current, uh, which is a DC signal. So your cell phones, your two-way radios, all those things uh, have anchoring and technology that's attached to crystals. Pretty neat. But let's look at this further, okay? As far as what the Bible says about crystals and their use, we have to look at how their use fits into practices that are discussed in the Bible and what the implications of these things actually are. In the question that was asked, crystals and witchcraft are put together in the same sort of sentence. And we can certainly connect these two things as being metaphysical or esoteric practices, meaning that the uses or practices of such things are meant for a small group of people, a select few that possess special knowledge, ancient wisdom, special powers, we have to note that the work of Christ upon the cross made the power of the Holy Spirit available for all mankind and not, just like the use of crystals and witchcraft support, not just for a select special few that obtain hidden knowledge through special works, arts, or incantations, okay? The very practice of these things actually discounts the final work of Christ on the cross and blasphemes the Holy Spirit, okay? Okay? Really important to recognize this. So uh, so scientifically, crystals can be used for powerful things. That's really neat. They're used in all sorts of interesting devices. But for a spiritual component to use as, uh, as something in your daily practices or rituals, I would say nay-nay. Okay? We want to not go down that road. Now, I want to make a special note okay? because we do live in the Kootenays and we experience all sorts of interesting teaching around uh, biblical ideas and thoughts. Some are great and they're anchored to the scriptures and some are way out there and we have to be a discerning people and figure out what is a good thing to anchor to and what is a bad thing to anchor to. So I want to make a special note. okay. The special note is this. Run far away from any group Organization, Christian organization, church, leader, or teacher that promotes special ways to connect to God that are outside of what we see in Scripture, okay? And and I really want to anchor in on this because this also attaches to the witchcraft component. So these folks may teach about a special revelation that they've received or teach a special way that you can receive power or that they've received a special instruction from God or a spirit, okay? Okay? They may also teach that you can obtain these types of powers or abilities uh, that other prophets or ancient teachers possessed by doing different different activities, whether it's a seance or an incantation or speaking certain words uh, or laying on a grave to receive a mantle of a prophet. These are absolutely unbiblical and not uh, advisable to practice at all. Uh, It may sound nice and attractive, Uh, And helpful, but you need to run the other way. You cannot, as a believer, adopt these things into your life. Spiritually speaking, these things are possible, okay? If they weren't possible, the Bible wouldn't capitalize on certain things. So, for example, in Leviticus, we are prohibited from speaking to the dead. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible spiritually, okay? I'm not getting into the science of that, but from the spiritual standpoint, It is possible, but we are prohibited from doing this. So spiritually speaking, these things are possible, but they will bring separation between you and God. And God's instructions on these types of practices are explicitly clear. Stay away from them, okay? So the Bible contains various passages that address the practice of witchcraft sorcery, and occult activities. And different verses across the Old and New Testament condemn such practices, and I want to just go over some of, these pra- or some of these verses with you quickly this morning, and if you have a notebook, you can quickly write them down too. So Exodus twenty two eighteen 18 uh, is very clear, and it sounds very harsh. It says, do not allow a sorceress to live, or a sorcerer to live. Uh, this verse reflects the seriousness with which the practice of sorcery and witchcraft was viewed in in ancient Israel. Deuteronomy verse or chapter 18 says, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, casts spells, or who is a medium or spirit spiritualist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable before the Lord. And In the New Testament, we see in Galatians chapter 5, it says the act of, of the of the flesh the acts of the flesh are obvious okay so these are things that are not born of the spirit but are actually born of our fleshly nature which will die your spirits won't die but your flesh will die okay the acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality impurity and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft hatred and discord jealousy fits of rage selfish ambition dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, and I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And finally, we see in Revelation chapter 21, it says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, the liars, uh, all will be consigned to the fiery lake, and this is the second death. Now, these things sound very firm. They are firm because God cares profoundly about the state of your soul. Your flesh is one thing. Your your body will eventually die. We will all die, and our bodies will turn into dust where we came from. That is the nature of human life. Our bodies will die. But our spirits have an eternal component. And if our spirits are going to commune with the perfect God, we cannot adopt imperfection into our spirits. We can't adopt the things that separate us from God into our spiritual practices. Now, I know this sounds, I I might be coming across as harsh, but the Bible is really clear. If you want to have a, a, a life moving forward with God that is united with the Lord, where there is peace in your spirit, peace in your home, rest in your soul. These types of practices, although for a moment may bring glimmers of hope, they will keep you chasing after them until the day you die, and they will leave you hungry, and they will leave you thirsty. The only one who will affect your spirit to the place where you will be satisfied internally is the work of Christ. He satisfies the hunger of your soul. He satisfies the thirst of your spirit. He ministers to those areas of your life that are desperately in need of him. And he is the only one that can bring that about. Ultimately, the use of crystals and witchcraft, etc., comes down to trusting and hoping and believing in created things rather than believing in the creator, God. It, uh, in this, there's a worshipping of the universe rather than worshipping the one who created the universe, who controls the universe. And in doing these things, we put other gods before the one true God. And God tells us, don't have any other gods before me. It's in the, it's in the first commandments that we see. The core of these practices or the use of these items are, are uh, in the idea that we ourselves can be like God. Okay? Okay? The core of these practices and using these things for for these types of practices uh, attract us to these things because there's this lie that's spoken to us that we can be like God. We can possess special wisdom. We can possess special knowledge. We can have special powers that are unique and special to us. No, okay? It is the first lie and the temptation that Adam and Eve fell to. When the serpent spoke to them, come and eat of this tree. I will give you all the knowledge of God. You can be like God. Uh, This caused a separation between them and their creator. And practicing these things will cause a separation between us and our creator. Does Does it mean that all of these things are just a joke and they're silly? Absolutely not. I do not want to uh, be, be ridiculous in saying that, oh, it's just all a joke, it's a scam. That's not true. There are power in these things, but they are not the power that you want to chase after. The power of God is the, is the power that you want to allow to come into your life and begin changing you, okay? So God doesn't want separation between us and him. God went to great lengths to create a bridge between us and him through the work of Christ on the cross. He went to the nth degree, to make sure that there was hope for us eternally. Uh, in fact, he sent Jesus as the only way to repair that separation. Jesus is the only way. And so for the Christian, we ought to remove these practices from our lives completely and, and heed the instruction of God's word. We want to adopt the instruction of God's word into our lives. So often people are reluctant to, to step, uh, stop or move away from these types of practices they're reluctant because it means that there's it means that they might not have access to the things they used to. They might not have the power that they perceived that they once had. They might not have the ability to talk to spirits like they used to. I promise you That when you say yes to Jesus, it's time to put those things away. Jesus doesn't want these things in your life because they actually create a division and a separation between you and the one who made you. God desires uh, a oneness with you, a closeness with you, an intimacy with you. But these types of practices will actually create a wedge between you and God. God wants a surrender of your heart to him, not uh, a pursuing uh, uh, after other things that give you a perceived power. What else? Great answer. That was a long answer. That was a Sorry. great, great yeah. answer. There's a yeah. lot
0: there. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would, I would add is that it's interesting that if, uh, like James said, like, yes, there's power and stuff in there. But if you have the real thing, why do you want the counterfeit? Like, if we have the real Holy Spirit, the one that is, like, why, what is, the, really, you need to get to know God more. Like, that would be the one piece, and the second piece would be is that the intention of our relationship with the Lord is to be our identity, to be seen and known by him, and when we're known by him, it doesn't matter if other people see us, because we're seen by the God, and these other practices often are so that people can see us and see what we can do, and God is flips that script, and he says, I see you. Why does it matter if anyone else sees you?
1: Yeah. And it, it's like we all know folks that are, that are like fascinated with things like astral projection or remote viewing and those types of practices. And so some of you are like, what the heck is that? Google it later, I guess, but don't do it. That'll be next year's okay? questions. No, that will be next year's question. But there's there's an attractiveness to this, right? Like I, I when I was young, there there was like uh, my friend group thought that that was really fascinating to be able to astral project or remote view, and it's just bizarre that this is a thing that can that can happen. Uh, but the reality is, is that you what you're doing is you're opening yourself up, you're opening your spirit up that should be guarded and cautious. You're opening that up to uh, to experience and interact with things that um, are actually quite nefarious and can cause a tremendous amount of long-term hurt and pain. And so, again, a lot of my friend base that I knew when I was younger have moved away from these things because it's actually led them to ruin. It's caused a great deal of, of harm and pain in their lives. Or they have they were so obsessed with, with doing these things that it's actually deterred them from even living a regular life or a healthy life or having healthy relationships. And so these types of things uh, will introduce division and factions and brokenness and hurt into your life. That is not God's intention for you. God's intention is for you to be healthy, whole, and filled with his spirit so that you can live a full life for him.
0: Great, all right. We're on to our last question. Are you ready, Darcy? Did you see that number six? Here we go. We're we're Uh, not even
1: at eleven thirty yet. What has gone?
0: I know we're doing good. It's okay. I got a while. Are you ready? Okay. Why are the new life pastors not interested in engaging with and getting to know members of the congregation?
1: Oh wait, listen. It's okay. We, we, ask, we actually we answer the hard questions. We do.
0: And, you know, we thought, do we need to try and word it so that it sounds nicer? And we thought, no, someone's actually asking a question, and I'm actually not offended by it. Um, and I mean that. I think if you are new here, if you'd been here for probably the last five years or so, maybe you would be like, what is this talking about? I don't understand. Because your only context would be how we function today. If you've been here longer than that, probably 10 years, you're going to see a drastic difference in pastoral staff and congregational members. It's changed. And we can't, we can't lie about that. That's the truth. But the reason why is what I want to unpack, the, the intent of this question is saying, why would, why aren't the pastors wanting to know the congregation members? And that's not actually a- accurate. I think we do want to. But let's just look at the context of our church. You wouldn't know it this morning because everyone stayed home because it's snowing. But um, are you ready? So we have now, compared to 10 years ago, this is where our church sits right today. We have over 23, 25 ministries running weekly. We have over 100 volunteers that are connected and serving. Uh, we have, and that's not including our many outreach, uh, uh, outreach groups that different people in the congregation are always coming for, um, counsel on, on how to connect with, and they're serving in different capacities on different boards in the community or, or different volunteer organizations that's just out of this building. Jesus preached to the thousands, dialogued with the hundreds, but actually only spent intimate time with the 12. Let me say that again. Jesus preached to the thousands. He taught the hundreds. But he actually only intimately spent time with the 12. And as pastors, as leaders, we need to model our lives after Jesus. So if you look at that and you say, okay, context today, which is very different than context was 10 years ago, it has changed in this church. And so uh, just in case people don't know, you have two paid full-time positions out of this church, we have a another one that is a rule apprenticeship program that is fundraised. That's Josh. He does most of his fundraising, and we do give him a small stipend. But as for your tithing, your giving to this church, you pay for two full time positions. James, James, and like you're not James. Uh, James and I share one. So we share one full-time position, even though we both work full-time out of the church. But we share one full-time paid position. Ben and Kristen share the other full-time paid position. And every other pastor that functions out of here is volunteering their time. Anyone who's serving in a ministry, overseeing that ministry, any of the, one of their leadership team are volunteering their time to do that. I just give in context... On any given, if you look at the, the church itself, so you look at just the volunteers and just the ministries, and I was kind of trying to run numbers, and I ran out of, like, I'm like, I don't know how to do this, of how many people would call New Life Church home? You're well over 400 people. And you may not know that because not everyone comes on a Sunday morning. There are many that connect in our groups during the week, and that is their church. That's their space. That's their place where they're getting ministered to. So you think about just when in the past you had a substantially lower number of congregants that were actually a part of the church and almost the same pastoral staff, that changes the dynamic. So now let's look at Scripture and what Scripture actually says about pastoring. You see that Paul oversaw a whole bunch of churches in a region. Very similar, like a whole bunch of ministries, right? He oversaw all this. He gave guidance. He gave teaching. He gave parameters of how to do church, how to do ministry, how to function. That was his job. He stepped in when there was issues and conflict. That was his job. He was overseeing the whole. But then we see that he had pastors that were overseeing the micro, the smaller groups, the smaller churches. But really, they were smaller groups of people, similar to our ministry groups, similar to those places. We have lots of people who are pastors who are connecting with you. It's just our model has shifted. And so it doesn't look like the lead pastor anymore, which is probably what what this question came from, is why doesn't the lead pastor want to know me? It's not that we don't want to. It's that we're not Jesus. And so there's only so much capacity that a human being has. So we intentionally spend our time making sure that those who are pastoring you are being poured into, are being loved, are being equipped to do that well. Uh, If we um, look at uh, stats, they would say that any one person can only have 15 good friends. 50 friends... 150 meaningful contacts, 500 acquaintances, and can recognize about 1,500 people. So let's just look at us as human beings as your pastors. We are not God. We're not Jesus. We're just humans who are trying to steward the positions that God has given us well. And so those stats actually count for us. That we only have the capacity to have this many people that we actually know really well and can pour into. So we made a shift to that as we saw ourselves growing intentionally as a team. That we would start to make sure that we're equipping those really, really well that are the front line that you probably do have face-to-face contact with. Those are your pastors. The four of us are not just the pastors of this church. Scripture talks about that we are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Every person should be being mentored and should be mentoring someone. And if you don't know the answer to that question, you need to sit and ask, what is the answer to that question? Who am I mentoring that is just starting, that is not as far as I am in my faith? And who is mentoring me that's further in their faith? And that person who's mentoring you is actually your pastor. They're the ones who's speaking into your life. They're the ones who's teaching you scripture. And that might be a few people, but you need to answer that question. Your faith is your own, it's not ours. And that is a shift. And I know, and I think as pastors, pastoral staff, we recognize that that's a shift in thought process from where the church was 10 years ago to where it was today. But I actually believe that it is a shift to get closer to what we see the scriptures saying church should be and less about what our model was, which is a very hier- hier- say the word.
1: hierarchical
0: That uh, structure. That's actually not scripture. Do you need a little bit of that? Absolutely, to make just what James talked about with uh, different spiritual practices, to make sure the boundaries of what scripture says are clear, that people know where we stand, what our values and our, our, um, a, what our mission is here at the church But guess what, guys? We are called to go and make disciples, which means that this is only going to get worse. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Come on, guys. That's a good thing. Because the less that you feel you have access to us, that actually probably means we're reaching people for Jesus. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Come on. Can we celebrate that? Like, is that break our hearts? Let me be clear, as pastoral staff, that breaks our hearts that anyone would feel like this because, of course, like, we love our people. We, we carry that weight very heavily that we are called to steward that well, to oversee well. But we also recognize that by the nature of who we are, which is a people that are sent to go and preach the gospel and make disciples, that we're going to grow if we're doing that well. And that means that two or four people are not going to be able to do that on their own. And so I encourage you to shift your perspective to say, okay, this is less about me and more about people knowing Jesus. So I'm going to find those that are mentoring me. And I'm going to find people that I can mentor. And let's go be on mission together. Amen? Amen. Anything you want to add? No? That's good. Good.
2: We used to. Our kids ate them all. We've got to get more.
1: <laughs> yes. yeah. It's, yeah, it, it's interesting. So we were actually, we were just at a, a, a pastoral conference uh, a couple months ago, and it was quite interesting just to hear some of the, the, the stats. Because we, we talk about this often. We wonder, like, how, how, how did people used to do it? Like, they're, they're, it's a lot. It seems like some days are a lot, or some months or weeks are a lot. Like, how, how do people manage these things? And, uh, you know, on average, um, 10 years ago, on average, uh, actually, we'll, we'll go back 30 years ago, uh, a pastor was exposed to three significant or traumatic events that they were called in to deal with uh, uh, during the course of a year, okay? On average. Uh, now, we're called in to deal with uh, three significant or traumatic events weekly. And so, uh, and and if you, who was here when I talked about men and marriage? Uh, oh, yeah, hallelujah, good. All the men are like, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> the wives are like, yes, I still remember. Um, I tell him every day. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, you know, and part of, part of that, part of that uh, you know, anchoring to that is, is this, is the reality that, my goodness, the, the time that is required just in order to meet with c- just couples, just in the congregation that are really, really struggling is significant. We're, talk- we're talking about uh, tens and tens of hours every week, uh, maybe 100 hours a month just in meeting with couples that are not doing well. And that's just, you know, that's just, a, a, you know, a dozen or so couples. It's, it's astounding. And that used to not be a norm historically at all, at all. Uh, whereas, you know, just generally everybody, you know, tended to do well. There may be a couple of marriages that were struggling historically, you know, t- 20, 30 years ago. But now there's a lot of challenges. And that's just marriages. Uh, you know, then there's folks who pass away or you're dealing with trauma in the community and whatever. And so, you know, our, our desires are so, like we, we love, we love the church. Uh, but then there's also deep weight or heavy weights on the shoulders of how do we care for everybody adequately and well. And you know, really, like if you know Jesus, praise the Lord. I'm so thankful that if you know Jesus, you can turn to Jesus and you can talk to Jesus and you can read about Jesus and you can pray to Jesus. This is good, praise the Lord. Do that, do that all the time, every single day. Uh, because we need him. We need the Lord. We need the Lord to intervene into our lives and circumstances. And then really on top of that, there's special circumstances, whether it's marriages or deaths or trauma that you've gone through that we try to, to adequately walk through. Um, it, it's challenging to just go and pop over for dinner sometimes, although we've done that a bunch lately and it has been wonderful. So thank you for those who invited us for dinner. Uh, but those, those uh, broader connections are more challenging when we experience more trauma and issues that go on in the society that we live in.
0: Yeah, I would just say, uh, I don't want this to come across as, oh, I, the pastors don't want me to go to them. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is is that if there's something going on and you need us, our doors are open. Mm-hmm. But you are right that we're probably not going to be present in your day-to-day if you're doing well. Yeah. That's just the reality.
1: And if you're not doing well, we, we, want- can't, we can't read minds. No, we can't. So
0: yeah, yeah. So that, that, is, that is the encouragement to you as the congregation. If you're asking, if you need something, then you need to come and share that with us. And we'll make sure that you have the support, whether or not it's from us or someone else. We have some really wise pastoral people that are in our congregation that are probably way better pastors than any one of us four. And just because we have the title doesn't mean that we're more important than them. So please, if there's something going on and you need support, you need to come and tell us. And we will get you that support. But we can't read minds we don't know and we're often dealing with we have what's in front of us and what comes in front of us and then making sure that people are equipped to pastor you well so deeply we love you all uh, but please find people that are pastoring you that are connecting that's what we see in scripture and that's what we want to model and on that
2: Uh, can I say something yes go for it no no (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the kids people are probably just like what the heck is going on because we're at like Anyways, um, but I was going to say, too, isn't it great that we can't do everything as staff? Like, I really think that that points to, like, it would be great if we were just like, yes, we can be there for everything. We are, you know, always present, 100%. We have the capacity. Um, but I think it really is great to know that we can't because it reminds us that we do need Jesus. Um, because I, and I'm not just saying that as, like, a, just to, you know, cover our butts, but, like, really, like... If we could do everything, there would be no need for relying on Jesus or the Holy Spirit or anything in our situation. Like, really, I've, I've had situations where I've wanted help and I've gone to tried to go to other people and they've been busy and they haven't been able to do that for even just my own life. Um, and in those times, it's a really great reminder of like, actually, Jesus is here all the time. I have the Holy Spirit all the time, and so I don't want to be that in your life, just for the record, because I would love it if the first thing, and I'm, I'm not saying you guys don't do this, but the first thing is, I'm going to go to Jesus, I'm going to ask for him to help me, and to even bring someone into my situation, right, like if, if it's not going to be one of us, or someone else who, live, who works here, like send someone that I, or like bring someone to mind that I can talk to or pray with, um, because really the body of Christ, where our intention as the body of Christ is to be, that for each other as well, right? And so if you're a Christian in this room, that means you're a part of something, and that means that if someone that you know and you're close to, even if you don't feel like you're their pastor, is going through something, you actually can go and be like, I'm going to pray with you, I'm going to support you, I'm going to check in with you, Um, and then of course going to the Lord um, and asking him to be involved as well is super important. So if we were able to fill all those gaps, I think that would be actually pretty negative in your guys's life because you would never be reminded of the need for the one who is always there and who is never going to fail. Um, and so I just thought I would remind us all of that.
0: Excellent. So on that... If you have children, don't forget to go get them. Oh, yes. uh, we are going to call the worship team up. There, we have one last song for us. And if you brought food to share, you can put it on any one of the tables around. And I encourage you to stay and hang out a bit after we worship and uh, and connect. That's and right. don't forget envelopes. And oh, and
1: envelopes. envelopes! We have two more weeks, so yes. if you guys yeah. can. We want to we want to help people in the community that are in need. So grab an envelope, put some cash in it, and uh, it's going to be a good time.